So the reading uh, for today will be from the Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 31, uh, through the chapter 7, verse 23. So Mark 6, 31 to Mark 7, uh, verse 23. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and, and got together and got there ahead of them. Then Jesus, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Um, so they sat down in groups of hundreds of and fifties. Okay. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Um, then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining in, at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Uh, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole uh, region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let him touch it, them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The Pharisees and, and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Uh, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. 
But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to, to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, uh, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body in saying this jesus declared all foods clean he went on what comes out of a person is what defiles them for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come sexual immorality theft murder adultery greed malice deceit lewdness envy slander arrogance and folly all these all these evils come from inside and defile a person this is the word of God. Amen. Thank you very much, Robert. May I add my welcome to that of Robert's? Um, especially if you are visiting today, it's always great to see um, new visitors today. Um, I hope this is the first of many visits. My name is Andy, as, as um, Robert already referred, and I am the pastor here. We really enjoy being uh, accessible here, so... Sometimes it works for our benefit, sometimes it causes a little tension, so I am sorry for the little tension that was caused by a visitor who didn't want to be welcomed, um, uh, really, uh, this morning. But uh, yes, thank God uh, that his help is, is, is with us, and as Robert's prayed, that we may peacefully focus on the Word of God this morning. So my friends, my friends, in Mark series... Um, uh, that we are in currently, we have been asking this question all the way through. Now, who is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And there are many, many options that, that people uh, come up with. They say, you know, is, is Jesus simply a, a, a social activist? Or is Jesus um, a, a revolutionary? Uh, or perhaps... Jesus is the most, the most um, moral teacher ever lived on earth. And I think there are plenty, plenty of internationals, your friends um, in Riga, that would think of Jesus in one of these terms. They are in your workplaces, they are in your lecture halls, they are in your classrooms, uh, maybe your dorm mates, maybe even your flatmates, think of Jesus in one of these ways. I recently stumbled upon an interview with a local celebrity. Apparently, he was asked if he believes in God. And he started by saying, of course I believe that there is uh, someone who has made this world, of course. But then he continued, but there is no need to squeeze God into the person of Jesus. And he went on and on about how ridiculous it is. Now, would you say that is how your maybe non-Christian friends think? Jesus is a compassionate and social activist, fearless revolutionary, He's the wisest moral teacher there is. Who do you say Jesus is this morning? Now, before we see it for ourselves, before we hear from Jesus and from Mark, let me give you a quote from um, C.S. Lewis, who's the 20th century, arguably um, one of the, the greatest thinkers, C.S. Lewis. Here's the quote. You must make a choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord 
and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what did Jesus intend people to see and understand about him? Now Mark wants us, and our friends indeed, to clearly see that Jesus is the Lord God who has come to rescue his people. And my friends, we will appreciate that only when we realize the true state of our hearts. Now, so let's firstly uh, see what Mark reveals about Jesus uh, in chapter 6, and then we're going to think about the whole heart thing in the second half from, uh, from chapter 7. Now, in chapter 6, I really believe Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the same, the same Old Testament God who has come to rescue and reveal his name. Firstly, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is a truly, truly fascinating story. Jesus and his disciples want to be alone for a while. Um, so, he, no, Jesus, yes, he wants to be alone for a while. And, and he wants to spend time with his disciples just to catch a breath. But people didn't leave them alone. Well, what, what do you do? What do you do? Jesus goes on teaching and he loses the track of time. The disciples are getting worried about the food supply for, for so many people. And they suggest Jesus dismisses the crowd so they could find some food in the nearby villages. But Jesus suggests that the disciples themselves should sort this whole thing out. And the disciples quickly do math and they come back to Jesus explaining how unreasonable his proposal is. And yet Jesus presses on with the local food bank of five loaves and two fish. And so after saying a blessing and breaking bread, Jesus not only feeds more than 10,000 people, so 5,000 men plus women and children, but he takes up 12 baskets of leftover. A truly fascinating story. But just to be clear, Mark is not describing a parable here. Do not confuse it with a fictional story about a non-existent sower who goes out and scatters the seed. Indeed, Jesus himself told this parable, a fictional story about the sower, to make a spiritual point. He did that. But that is not the case with the feeding of 5,000. Here we are dealing, as Robert mentioned earlier, with an eyewitness account, the testimony of the disciples. So we are dealing with facts. There were five loaves and two fish, Jesus prayed over it and then distributed food to more than 10,000 people. And then they took up 12 baskets of leftover. <coughs> Why do I want to emphasize that? Because these facts are not at all obvious to so many people today. Sometimes it seems that people are happy, very happy, to go with whatever explanation there is, whatever. But the one flowing out of the plain, plain facts that they are there. So this week I rewatched a short interview uh, um, on YouTube with a liberal Lutheran bishop. And she was asked about the miraculous stuff in the Bible. What does she think about that? And in her reply, she effectively, well, she, was, she actually mentioned the, this, this story, this occasion. And she effectively dismissed the miraculous multiplication 
of loaves of the loaves and fish. Why? Because according to her, the story about the feeding of 5,000 is not so much about Jesus, but about the people being fed, whether literally or spiritually or emotionally. And to her, it didn't really matter what had happened to the bread. So I don't know whether you noticed that when, when Ilza was reading the scriptures. But funny, because according to Mark, the only thing that matters about this story is to understand about the lows. Glance at verse 52. In order to see who Jesus really is, you need to get the event about the bread and the fish. 52. And the disciples, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. So interesting, isn't it? So what is the meaning behind Jesus' multiplication of these five loaves and, and two fish? And Mark's point is that Jesus does here the same thing the Lord did for Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole story echoes God's dealings with Israel in the desert. Let me give you a few examples. Verse 31 and 32 and 35, three times Mark mentions that they are in a desolate place. Ta-da! Where was Israel? Israel was in the desert. And then Jesus commands people to sit in the groups of hundreds and fifties, just as Moses, father-in-law Jethro, did in Exodus. He said, Moses, just get these people in the groups. And then Jesus feeds many people with bread from heaven as he prayed to his father. He multiplied the bread, just as God did, back, did it back in Exodus granting uh, the people of Israel with the bread, manna, bread from heaven. And Jesus, as, shep um, as a shepherd, has compassion over the people, just as Moses in Exodus is the shepherd of God's people. So many, many Exodus allusions here. But friends, what is the point of all these allusions in Exodus? Good question. Mark's point is to reveal Jesus as God who comes to rescue his people. You see, Jesus has not only come to bring series of, of these mini rescues that we've seen in Mark's gospel so far. Uh, for example, cl cleansing just one leper or eating with one tax collector, or raising one girl from the dead, etc. No, Jesus has come to bring the rescue with a capital R, the big rescue. We see an echo of that in Exodus. Exodus is the decisive turning point in, in Israel's history, but the Old Testament prophets, they were telling them, that they should expect an even greater exodus. God, personally, himself, come to rescue his people as the shepherd. So Jesus is the long-awaited shepherd king of God's people, God himself, in the flesh. So feeding up the 5,000 and what it's all about. I think a very similar point is made by our second story here, and Jesus walking on water from verse 45. Let me just, again, retell quickly the story for us. After this huge picnic, um, um, Jesus makes his disciples to get into the boat and cross um, to the other side. After some prayer time, Jesus decides that he actually wants to catch up with his disciples. So, so we, we see they could use a hand because, you know, they had a wind against them. Uh, and, and so Jesus approaches them. 
because we, we know that Jesus is able to deal with winds previously, right? So Jesus takes a straightforward walk to the boat, but not quite. Jesus means to pass by. The disciples are terrified because they think they see a ghost. Uh, Jesus calms them down by saying, hey, it's me, guys. And then he gets in the boat and the wind ceases and they are safely on the other side. And again, we are dealing here, my friends, with the facts. An eyewitness testimony, not a parable. Everything in this story begs the question, who is this Jesus? Who does that? No, Jesus didn't just wander around the coastline in the shallow waters, you know, like in this Easter service, Kenya West walking on, on, the, on the kind of imitating Jesus walking on the water to this angelic choir, whatever. I just saw a snippet of it. It was so bizarre. Uh, but it's not Jesus here. It's not Jesus here. The fact that the disciples th uh, thought they see the ghost confirms that they were in deep waters. Nobody walks there. Nobody walks there. And not only Jesus turned great storm into great peace previously, but he walks on water like it was uh, a, dry, a dry ground. Who is this Jesus? Well, I think we are, are meant to spot just that. There are, again, at least three big allusions to the Exodus. And that is not a, not a coincidence. Why? Because the two big themes of the book of Exodus, for those of you who have studied it, remember it's rescue and it's revelation. Jesus walks on water like it was a dry ground, exactly like Israel walked through the Red Sea on a dry ground. Jesus passes by the boat just like God passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock. What is the significance there? Jesus reveals to his disciples his glory, just as Yahweh revealed to Moses his glory, proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord uh, compassionate. And, and thirdly, Jesus uses the words, it is I, it is I that God uses at the burning bush when he reveals himself to Moses. Do you remember? I am. What is your name? I am. Now, what are the disciples supposed to see when they look at Jesus in the night? How Jesus reveals himself to be the God who's come to rescue his people. That's what they are supposed to understand. Now, do you see how Mark focuses us to make a choice? S sorry, he forces us to make a choice about Jesus. And he does that all the time. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? Is Jesus just a man? Is Jesus less than that? Is, is he a ghost, a bodiless ghost? Well, what have we seen so far about Jesus? Who can say your sins are forgiven? Who can claim that the right to interpret the real purpose behind the Sabbath? Who can say to the storm, peace, be still? And there's great peace. Who can command several thousand demons to head for destruction? And they do. Who can do that? Do you see how Jesus doesn't leave an option of calling him a great moral teacher? He's either, like C.S. Lewis says, a madman or something even worse, or he is the Son of God, revealing himself to be the God who comes to rescue his people. He doesn't leave an option to us. Now, what did Moses have to do upon realizing 
who he's speaking to at the burning bush. Does anyone remember? He had to take off his shoes. I'm not suggesting that we do it now, because, because taking off, taking off shoes before Jesus means recognizing, confessing, recognizing who Jesus is. The great I am, God, the shepherd king, who arrived to deliver his people. Well, not from the Egyptians, no, from, from sin. In that sense, we are not simply barefoot, my friends. No, we are completely naked, waiting for Jesus to clothe us in his righteousness. I remember sitting at the table with a group of Muslim students back in the days. It was one of these fantastic student missions in Nottingham, in England. So I asked them a few questions just to see where they're coming from. I wanted to know how they see themselves before God. It struck me that they used the metaphor of being clothed. Really, I was struck. They said that they are born in this world, on the top of the mountain, clothed in white robes, and that their task in this world is to make sure their clothes stay white by keeping five pillars of Islam, which is profession of faith, prayer, giving alms, uh, giving gifts, fasting, and pilgrimage to Mecca. And it was interesting, although, although they had a huge respect for Jesus as this humble prophet from Koran, in their eyes, Jesus was just a great man. And that's why I was so glad that they were hearing the eyewitness account about Jesus, what he says and what he does. I wanted so badly for them to see that they can't make themselves right with God. They, they, they can't even get these white clothes by themselves, let alone maintain them pure and white throughout their lives. There is nothing that they can do by their good deeds. And that only Jesus can do that. In fact, he has done that for us right on the cross. If we trust him, he clothes us in the white robes, in his righteousness. Now, may I ask you, where do you stand on that? Where do you stand on Jesus? Do you see Jesus as just a humble prophet, a gifted, gifted teacher, or even maybe a non-violent revolutionary? But effectively, you live your life as if you could earn the approval from God. Thinking that you can somehow make yourself right with God. What do you say? What do you think? Now be persuaded today by Mark that Jesus reveals himself as none other than God. God who's come to rescue his people. You see, Islam is just one example of works religion. Just one of these examples. In chapter 7, we see another example of works religion. The Pharisees and scribes, they have turned Judaism into another form of works religion. And Jesus has something very strong to say to them. You see, whereas they should have taken off their shoes before Jesus, i.e. confessing, Jesus, you are, you are God. They were effectively saying to Jesus, take off your shoes, meaning, Jesus, you're not kosher enough. You're not orthodox enough. Or just a little pause, I mean, the, the taking off shoes, when I was thinking about that, we have this, I have this Latvian friend, um, uh, he's a Christian guy, but he's a meticulously, he's meticulously pedantic, clean about his car. It's a man thing I hear sometimes. 
So we sometimes joke that even Jesus couldn't go in his car. He would have to take off his shoes because it's like there's another dust in there. I wonder what he, his wife thinks about the whole thing. But anyways, so that's why I remember kind of take off your shoes, Jesus, because I mean, you are not even worthy to go in my car. I'm putting, you know, the words in his mouth. It's not like that. It's just it's a fun thing that we sometimes say about him. And he knows that. It's not behind his back, right? But that is something that we see in, in, in chapter 7. There are these guys that are not really friendly to Jesus. And they would have Jesus take off his shoes. Jesus, you're not kosher enough. You're not, you're not orthodox enough. And these are, are pretty high-ranking guys, so Pharisees and scribes. We've seen him before. Um, and so verses 3 uh, and 4 describe um, how meticulous they were about their traditions and hygiene. Do you see they were washing everything? Cups and hands and, and everything. And I am particularly curious about the dining couches. I mean, that must take quite an effort to wash dining couches all the time. I mean, how much time does it take? And they observe Jesus, and they watch his disciples, and they have a couple of objections. We see in verse 4, Jesus, your disciples do not observe the traditions of elders. So you're not kosher enough. And verse 5, Jesus, your disciples eat with defiled hands, dirty hands. And then we see... Jesus responding. And he has some serious things he wants to say to them. And from verse 6, Jesus responds by setting um, up. Um, he says, by setting up your rules, guys, what you do, you are rejecting God. Actually, let's, let's look at verse 6. And Jesus said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Now, man-made religion has an appearance of godliness. I think we were thinking about that in 1 Timothy, right? It boasts in discipline. Man-made religion boasts in clear lines that are not to be crossed. It has appearance of godliness. But Jesus calls it for what it is. Verse 7, the doctrines and commandments of men. It's nothing more. It's nothing more. And then Jesus says, it can't be both and. It is always either or. Notice how three times and with increasing intensity, Jesus describes how man-made religion is actually anti-God. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Leave, rejecting, making void. But what does that look in practice? Well, Jesus gives one of many examples of how they do that. How they were destroying the word of God. Glance at verse 10. Again, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. And then look at that. But you say, if a man tells his father and his mother... Whatever you have, would have gained from me is Corban, and in gaps, that is given to God, then you no longer permit to him to do anything for his father or mother. 
So let's say a Christian has to care for his or her elderly parents. Let's picture that. And that means covering uh, utility bills, you know, helping carry utility bills, and then buy some food and buy increasing amounts of medicine. I mean, spending substantial uh, uh, sorry, amount of money honoring father and mother, helping them, caring for the parents. And, but along then comes these church leaders. They appear to be godly, they appear to be upright, and they say, ah, if you give that money, which should go to your parents' support, if you give that money to God, meaning to us, to us, to God, to us, to God, to us, he will excuse you. He will excuse you not taking care for your elderly parents. Now, isn't that so obvious. Isn't that absolutely outrageous? And yet, on the outside, it appeared to be so pious, so honorable, giving to God, giving to God. Again, Jesus exposes it in verse 7. Man-made religion is hypocritical. You hypocrites, he says. And such worship is not acceptable to God. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts in their hearts um, uh, is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, the commandments of man. Now let me pause here a little bit, because I think hypocrisy is, is it's a nasty, nasty thing. It is not simply saying one thing and doing something entirely different. I think that would be called cheating. You know, you say one thing, you do other thing, you cheat. Now, hypocrisy is something slightly different. Hypocrisy is saying and doing the right things very passionately. But in order that no one would ask what is going on in your heart. I think that is the subtlety of hypocrisy. For instance, a conservative, even Christian man being very vocal, very, very passionate about the traditional family values while secretly lusting after pornography. So that's hypocrisy. He's publicly very, very pro-family, pro-conservative, but secretly he's harboring this lust uh, and, and doing, doing a double life. Or a conservative, even a Christian single woman being very loud, very opinionated about anything woke, anything woke, while secretly carving out plans, uh, for instance, to become a, a single parent via the IVF or artificial insemination. And those are real examples, actually. So there is um, a subtlety to the hypocrisy, it's, it's nasty. And what Jesus says is it, it doesn't matter how sound your theology is. Jesus says uh, it doesn't matter how upright your talk is. What do you stand for? What do you vote for? What matters is really what is going on in your heart. That is the only thing that really, really fundamentally matters. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes insisted that Jesus' disciples have defiled hands. Do you remember? But Jesus insists that the problem is defiled hearts. Jesus is quick to sort out the misunderstanding, or rather, the commandments of man. The real defilement, my friends, is not outside in. No, that's not the real defilement. Glance at verse 14. Hear me, all of you, and understand. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person... Are what defile him. You can actually eat pork. You can actually eat beef. You can actually eat everything because Jesus declares all food 
to be clean. There is nothing that defiles a person by coming from outside in. I, I think the logic here, the logic here seems to be pretty, pretty simple, right? Now, the food enters mouth, then the food goes further, enters tummy, and then it ends up in loo. I know it's a bit more complicated than that, I know, but let, just for the sake of clarity, right? But one thing is for sure, and, and you medical students, right, you doc doctors, future doctors, you will, you will confirm this. Upon the heart surgery, upon the heart surgery, it is very, very unlikely that the doctors will find a trace of yellow penio in the heart because it doesn't end up there, right? It can't defile heart or sweet corn or whatever is your favorite. It can't defile the heart. It doesn't end up there. Of course, it's more complicated than that. Jesus does, doesn't speak here about the heart, the organ that, that pumps our blood, that distributes the blood to the rest of the organism. Instead, human heart, according to Jesus, is the control center of his being. According to the Bible, our decision-making is not done in our mind. That's somewhere at the, uh, at the forefront of our, and what's it, what that's called? You, yes, yes, for, yes, exactly. Very complicated. I can't remember that name. So, no, it's done by our hearts. This, the decision-making is done in our hearts. And Jesus says, that is where all our motives come from. That is where all our longings, desires come from, our hearts. And Jesus says that is where the real problem is. Okay? You think that the defilement is outside in? No. Jesus says no. The defilement is inside out. Glance at verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, it is a pretty condemning list of evil, isn't it? But I think Mark's purpose, or Jesus' purpose for that matter, is not to focus on the list itself, really, but on a source of it. And I think these evils are actually plain and obvious to everybody out there, to us and to everybody. No one will deny that these things exist around us. They are evident in the world. They are evident in people's lives. No one will deny it. A politician who evades taxes and then forges accountancy documents, no one would deny that these evils <laughs> exist, right? Uh, a group of people who engage in slander in workplace or lecture hall or your classroom, no one will deny that these things exist, right? Or self-promotion that springs from envy and pride, um, ready to sacrifice friendships over career. People see that happening every day. No one will deny that. And the unquenchable desire to have this, this next big thing, this big thing, gadget, fashion item, lifestyle, upgrade. Everyone confess this is happening around us. It's true. It's, it's fueled by, by coveting, by greed. No one will deny that. Again, people would not have any problems acknowledging these things exist, but their assessment of how bad it is would differ very much. Why is that? Because people in the world think that it can be fixed. All of these examples can be easily fixed if only we improve education, upbringing, if, if only we improve environment, we care more about employees' environment or school environment, whatever. It can be fixed. And to put it more bluntly, it can be cured by either stick or carrot. Do you know what I mean, roughly? 
by the stick or carrot. Two options, and we will fix it. And that is only because according to this world, human heart is essentially good. So people say there's all sorts of evils around us. Yes, it does spoil our lives, but human heart, humans are actually essentially good. So it must come from somewhere else. Now, if that is true, then you really can do with Jesus only the great teacher, right? A fantastic moral example, a passionate social worker, a nonviolent revolutionary who inspires people to share their lunch and so 10,000 people are fed. If humans are essentially good, that actually you are at peace with this sort of Jesus. Because if you yourself can fix your life, then you only need just a little nudge of inspiration, just an example to aspire to. But please tell me, tell me, is there any evidence whatsoever in the human history where humans can have managed to fix the big things, like properly fix them? I can't see any, because the problem is not outside in. The real problem is inside out. That is why Jesus is saying in verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. According to Jesus, human's biggest problem is not food, environment, whatever. It's heart failure. That's the biggest problem. But what do you do when your heart fails you? How do you fix that? Well, let me borrow an illustration that we're going to look at more closely in the future. Later on in Mark's gospel, Jesus will be really direct with his disciples. And, <laughs> and he will say there should be no tolerance of sin. I'm not going to comment on the detail of that. We'll get to that. But he says things like that. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, well, pluck it out. And then Jesus adds, it is better. It is better to enter the kingdom of God crippled with one eye, with one hand, with one foot than to be thrown in hell. Right? I'm not going to comment on detail. It's quite complicated. We'll, we'll get to that in due time. But why do I mention this now? It's one thing to say, right, you, you, you enter crippled with one hand, one foot, one eye. But what if your heart fails you? What if your heart fails you? Cut it out? Right. What does me medical students write? You, you, we, we know, right? We know what happens. You die. That's it. You die. You're dead. Now, friends, fundamentally, we are unable to deal with our heart failure. I think that's the point. That's the point in chapter 7. And that's why we need to hear from Jesus' lips today and every day. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. I have washed your heart clean at the cross. I have done it. You have now been clothed in my righteousness. You've been given white robes. I have taken away the punishment for your sin. I've done that. I've sorted this out. And my friends, we need today, we need every day, Jesus, not to be a moral example, a wonderful moral teacher, non-revolutionary activist, social worker. No, we need Jesus, who is the physician, who is our heart surgeon, who cleanses our conscience, who removes our guilt. 
And friends, only when we realize the true, that true condition of our heart, we will long for the real Jesus of the Bible. Jesus who reveals himself as the glorious, glorious Lord who has come to rescue multitudes of people. And then we'll also hear the word that disciples heard in the boat. Do not be afraid. You're struggling with so many things. Do not, do not be afraid. It is I. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm come to rescue. I've come to rescue you. Let's pray. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you for revealing yourself to us as the, the ultimate heart surgeon, our physician, our doctor who can really, really cure our hearts. Please con convict us that this is where all our sorrows and troubles really come from. Not from the outside, not from the environment, not from the obstacles, not from other people, but from our hearts. So, Jesus, please have mercy on us today and the coming week that we would trust in your work on the cross that removes our guilt, our punishment, our sin, and washes our clean, that we can with unveiled open faces look upon you and call you our Redeemer, our Rescuer, our glorious, glorious Lord. So, Father, we need, we need this Jesus. We need this real Jesus. And our friends need this real Jesus. Our, our uni mates, our, class, our, our classroom friends need this real Jesus. So may we, Father, be the channel through whom this Jesus, this gospel, gets to people. We pray that in his name. Amen.